Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. I'm so honored to be here, and um, I'm very honored by the presence of everyone in this room, by being here with me. You really dignify all the years I spent working on this book, so thank you so much for being my community. I've been looking forward to this event very much. Um, I'm going to read about 10 pages from the book, and then I'm honored to be in conversation with Carolina, a writer I admire very much. I think... I've been really interested to see the ways that uh, this book has been described. And then I also realized that in this room, there's probably different layers of understanding of what happens in this book. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to tell you anything about it, except for I'm going to take that back and say, (laughs) the protagonist of the book is 18, an American. She is in rural northern Denmark. She's living with this older Danish man who was supposed to be her camp counselor, and she's preoccupied with a local hermit uh, called Gaden, which means the goat. That night was no different. Soren, despondent about his thesis, defrosted tiny cold shrimp in the sink and served them to me on toast spread with mayonnaise, a wet meal my stomach morosely accepted. It would sit there a long time. I was constipated from all the processed flour and meat, or maybe I was just knotted up with thoughts of Gaden. After dinner, Soren suggested we watch a movie, a famous old film that every Dane knew and loved was on television that night, even running with English subtitles. His excitement fatigued me. The movie was about a pair of vagabonds who come to a farm and befriend the family that owns it. Much dull fun is had until evil businessmen show up to buy the farm out from under the family and the vagabonds jump into action to repel the opportunistic capitalists, uniting everyone in bucolic joy. This was apparently one of the most beloved films in the history of Danish cinema. The actor who played the younger Vagabond, Søren explained, had been so iconic in the role that for the rest of his career he had been typecast. As long as he could pass for young, the actor played honorable boys on the verge of manhood who swept into the lives of farm girls and impoverished noblewomen and shy Copenhagen school teachers and showered them with morally upright kindness and love and respect. He made honest women of them and was a true husband. There was a Danish word for the actor's special character type, Forsta Elska, first lover. First lover, I passed the words through my mouth. Who is the second lover then? Who comes next? Roxana. Soren shook his head and put his arm around me. 
It was the first time he had touched me in days. I stiffened, afraid he, was t he would take his arm back. He looked deep into my eyes, and for a moment I was sure he would kiss me. His tongue would slip into my mouth, a word I had forgotten. I would speak it again, and time would restart. He stroked my face. Silly Roxana, there is no second lover. The force to Elster is also the girl's last. Once he wins her heart, she can never win it back. Something happened in the movie and Surin yanked away. His impenetrable laughter fell on me like snow. Every day in the week before I was to meet Gaiden for lunch, I made a silent promise. If Surin showed me one ounce of interest, I wouldn't go. It was an illogical pledge. Why shouldn't I? Lunch was not infidelity. And the strangeness of Surin's dislike for Gaiden made it easy to lie. Besides, he didn't even know that I had been leaving the apartment. One of those nights we were at dinner, pushing wilted lettuce across our plates, and I heard Sylvie's voice. She always knew who and what I wanted before I did. Do you want to fuck Gaiden? The question turned me so red that Surin opened the window in concern, saying, you wanted a salad, as if I had complained. I left the table, went to the bathroom, closed the door, and took off my pants. My feral smell rose to greet me. I conjured Gaiden's eyes, licked the tip of my pinky to the knobby bone in my wrist, brought myself off with that. The next morning, we went to the grocery store to buy ingredients for an American dinner I was supposed to cook, Surin's idea. I've cooked every night you've been here. You've had enough Danish food. Do I get an American abroad experience? Ha, I said. An American broad experience, maybe. He didn't get it. <laughs> we paced the aisles with one of the tiny grocery carts that passed for useful here. What was I supposed to cook? Sylvie and I had made obscure French things together, hashish parmentier, tartiflette, magret de canard. Outside of these experiments, I didn't have much experience in the kitchen. I could produce toast, a grilled cheese sandwich, cereal with milk. Cern wanted baked potatoes, a steak, a hamburger, tacos. We trailed through the meats, ground pork, pork chops thick and thin, the sausage, medista pulsa, other paler sausages, chicken, steaks, a package of oblong pig's hearts. I reached to tap their cellophane wrapper with my fingers and jumped at Surin's sharp intake of breath behind me. He dropped his hands heavily onto my shoulders, swearing in Danish. Fahelvida, Roxana, I'm starving. He let go and walked away. A pack of boneless, skinless chicken breasts stared up at me from the refrigerated case. Suddenly, Cern was beside me again, whispering in my ear, Pick something, pick something, please, please, please pick something, I'm starving. His needs were always so insistent, and my own were nothing. I turned to face him. I haven't figured out what I'm cooking yet, give me a second. Soren somehow shrank and became more erect at the same time, as if both embarrassed and smugly confirmed by my behavior. Please, keep your voice down. Who cares? I made my voice louder. Honest to God, who cares? No one is listening. 
As if to prove me wrong, an old lady in a sweatshirt slowly shook her head as she made her promenade around the meat. Why does everyone here act like that? I asked Soren. He covered his eyes with his hand. You are making a scene. Oh, I'm sorry, I said. Please excuse me. I couldn't breathe. I would cry. I couldn't cry. I wouldn't. Soren grabbed my shoulder and pulled me close. What? What are you apologizing for? Everything's fine. He said fine, exactly as Dad did when he was mad. A nothing word, a cold little shrug. I just don't know what I want to buy. I'm not a very accomplished cook. Give me some time. Cern took the cart. Fine, we'll have chicken tartlets again. Please, grab those chicken breasts. He turned away. I didn't say I wouldn't cook. Soren, Soren, talk to me, Soren. He whipped around and took my elbow. We are leaving. But I still want to cook dinner. Be quiet. He sighed heavily. You make everything so complicated. I just want to get in and out of here before the entire day is gone. Why was he always in such a rush? What else did he have to do? It had been his idea that I cook in the first place. My face was immediately all wet as if I dumped my head in a bucket. I need a second to calm down, I whimpered. Then I'll figure it out. Stop it, Soren whispered, furious, as if this was the worst thing I'd said yet. He began pulling me to the exit. No, no, I cried. I don't want to go with you. I don't. The teenage boy sleep sweeping the floor twisted his neck unnaturally just to keep from seeing me. Surin stopped, put his arm around me, drew me close. I'm sorry, Roxana, he said in a low voice, almost kind. Come on, let's get out of here. I looked up into his face. What are you sorry for? Shut up, shut up, shut up, he hissed. I cannot bear to be here any longer. This is exhausting. Please leave the store before you embarrass yourself further. You were supposed to run away from alligators in a zigzag, I remembered. So I zigzagged out of the store. Back out into the day in the cave-like car, I collapsed in the seat, slit my eyes. Cern drew my seatbelt over me, clicked it shut. What did I do? I whimpered, suddenly wanting to be small, a child who had misbehaved and could be forgiven. He set his mouth and looked straight ahead, turned the key in the ignition. Be quiet. Please, just be quiet. By the time we got home, I felt as flat and blank as a sheet of paper. Surin brushed his lips against my forehead and said he hoped I was feeling better. For dinner, we had chicken tartlets. The next night, Soren brought home a movie he thought I would like about a poor young girl growing up in a housing project in England. One morning, the girl goes downstairs and puts a saucepan of water on the stove. She is dancing alone when a man's voice surprises her. A shirtless stranger has entered the room, lithe, muscled, rough. My eyes traced his golden triangle of shoulders, waist, crotch the Swiss actor from the science fiction movie, The Android. She is in her underwear and a purple t-shirt, and he is in jeans only, which sit low on his hips, revealing the incipient curve of his ass. The ridges of muscle in his torso, his flickering arms as they make breakfast, the camera, her eye. Beside me, Cern fell asleep, slackening, his breath slowing, his soft lips pressing his elegant hands unclasped, released. 
At the party, the girl steals a bottle of vodka from a couple engaged in the early stages of intercourse in the kitchen. She drinks herself to sleep on her mother's bed, walking, waking to her mother and her mother's new friend, the lovely man, talking beside her. The mother wants to tell her to leave, but the man shushes her, scoops the girl up in his arms, and carries her to her bedroom. The girl is awake, but the man thinks she is asleep. They pass through the hallway in lush layers of darkness, gray on black. The man's arms around her, the dark passage of the hallway, her secret wakefulness. He lays her in her bed, takes off her sneakers, rolls down her socks, gently, gently. Her body asleep but not, that reverent state in which the form, independent of the mind, seeks to be perceived as unconscious. If he learns she is awake, the spell will break. He takes off her pants, revealing modest white underwear. He folds the pants, covers her with a blanket, turns off the light, leaves. That's all. He's a good guy, at least for tonight. The girl opens her eyes in the dark. Surin's breath caught in his throat, made a kind of sucking sound. Sometimes, when I watched movies stoned, I couldn't focus. Sometimes I fell asleep and woke, slept and woke, deeper and deeper, until waking up was like dragging myself out of a pit. This annoyed Surin. Wake up, Scott. We are spending time together. I wanted what I saw when I let my eyes unfocus and the shapes on the screen went blurry. The contours of his body and the beats of the scenes already inside me, ready for replaying. I turned off the movie when Surin was safely asleep. I was tempted to rewatch the scene where the man carries the girl to her bedroom. But instead I rose from the couch as quietly as possible and went into the bathroom, the only room in the apartment with a lock. Not even a lock, really, just a little latch bolted to the door frame. It would do. I had learned to avoid the mirror when entering the bathroom, to hold my head so I wouldn't see my unholstered breasts loose hanging above my tummy in Surin's shirt. Seeing my body would compromise my ability to dream the man. The fantasy was coming together in dissonant, embarrassing points. I had to not think about it too much. The girl in the movie was thin, with skinny arms, knobby breasts, even smaller in person, I was sure. But all she did with it was wear those hideous giant sweatsuits. I lay down on the floor and pressed the first and second fingers of my right hand up into my crotch. The bath mat was damp under my head, smelling of mold. I pressed the rise of my pubis, a sustained pat, the way I firmly pressed Mushi's head over and over until his eyes closed. Here, I am here, I thought, with each press. I am inside here, where I live. I want to go somewhere, I thought. I had to be careful not to cry. I pushed again harder, releasing a flash of wonderful feeling, vibrant and fast, a horse I could ride. I knew where I wanted to go. During my senior year, I had become preoccupied with a different actor. I saw him on an award show and had that same sinking feeling. He was the one for me, not in real life, in my fantasy life. He had a jagged, angular face and a spare, tall body. He was awkward and funny in interviews. His mother, I learned, was a renowned painter with a significant body of work, which made me like him most of all. Son of a strong woman, learner of her worth. 
I cut pictures of him from magazines and pasted them in a photo album with a soft blue cover. I took the train to the city with Sylvie to see a movie that would never make it to Creek Grove, in which he played a petty criminal, a con man in love with a pretty girl. It wasn't good, but I didn't care. All I wanted were the love-making scenes. The whole time I was hung up on that actor, I thought, this is the last time. I am in my last year of high school. I am 18 years old. I will leave school and go to another school in a city by myself. This is the last time I will clip pictures of a handsome stranger from magazines. Maybe there never was a last time, only a concerted gap between nexts. I curved the fingers of my right hand between my legs and pulled up, unleashing an arc of pleasure that settled against the flash in a kind of firework. A little one, a starter. When I was younger, it was harder to assemble a world. Fantasizing felt city, silly, put on. I just pushed and pulled at the approximate location, blank, until I couldn't breathe anymore, and bright flowers blossomed, and I blinked around the room, incredulous, and the purple smoke came. It wasn't like that anymore after Hunter, after Surin. I learned that when someone touched me, I changed, every time. There was a truth here. Surin would not give himself to me as I wanted. In the bathroom, I was safe. Surin could not find me. I wasn't with him here. I was leaving. I was going somewhere else. I closed my eyes. A fancy hotel room, fluffy towels, marble surfaces, windows full of sparkling sea behind lowered pearl shades. Behind me, the actor from the movie. I made the rules. The actor looked at me with cold eyes. I ran one and two fingers against my clit and thought what would happen. He would come to me and take off his jacket, loosen his tie. He loved the taste of my sweat, the way it collected sour in the crevices of my body. First he would kiss me, his tongue would paint mine, our teeth in each other's way. He cupped and groped my breast, his hands diligent, trained, knowing. He would rub his palm up and down the central line of my body, reaching between my legs. No questions, no conversation. Him behind, biting the back of my neck. Him on top, hitting me across the face with an open palm over and over again. Solidifying the diffuse pain I swam in, making it solid and real. It felt so good to be seen. Where were we back there in the hotel room, on the cold marble floor or in the sheets? He told me to spread my legs, to spread them wider. I opened my mouth and was bidden to put my tongue on every part of him, to lick the bottoms of his feet. When the purple feeling began to smoke inside me, blooms and combustions and exploding bulbs tornadoing up, fierce and terrifying, I sat up and threw my crotch back and forth against the heel of my hand, hard. The purple smoked and I tensed and released and tensed and it smoked and I released. Every lean brought another gust, another wash. Each tensing was complete, crystalline, the fantasy coming together now, complete and determined. I sat on the actor, breasts aloft, hair wild. He was naked in mine. I rocked back and forth. He looked up at me, helpless, lost, begging to be shown the way. I leaned and cut a little nick in the shallow, thin skin above his clavicle with something sharp. My fingernail? A knife? It didn't matter. I opened him with the sharp, and blood puddled at the wound. He threw his head back. This was what he wanted, the thing he couldn't speak. 
to be opened. I pressed my mouth to the wound, tongue to the edges of the cut, climaxed, convulsing like a death rattle. The feeling of him began to fill me, took me there too. In the hotel room, I coughed, moaned, screamed like I was dying. In the bathroom, I panted and whispered. He would be gone soon, but it wasn't over. I was caught in it, an anemone in a thunderhead. There was one last image before he left, his expression of horrified gratitude. I threw myself against the tile, slapping my face, frantic to stay high as I fell back down to the bathroom, to the apartment, to Farso. My life filtering in, myself, the lights coming up after the film. I spoke the words out loud. Oh God, oh Jesus, yes, please hurt me, hurt me, hurt me. When the vision had left me, I leaned against the wall, satisfied and sad. I sobbed fiercely for a moment, curling my body in on itself, feeling the vacuum of want inside, the blowsy, ugly place where Soren had left me alone. No, I said, standing on shaking legs, the blood that had rushed to my face at the slaps already leaving me. I could never do it hard enough to leave a mark. Avoiding my face in the mirror, I washed my hands and went back out into the apartment. Thank you. I think you said you didn't want to talk about how the book came about, but that was my first question, so I got to answer. Oh, no, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, it's a funny story. The book began in July of 2010 as a YA supernatural romance with time-traveling Vikings. <laughs> <laughs> We've come a long way. I knew that I would write it in six months, correct the Twilight script, and become a millionaire. <laughs> um, I had actually done a fair amount of research on Vikings, uh, but I found after I'd written about 150 or 200 pages of it that I was avoiding the moment of magic transformation where the contemporary protagonist headed back to Viking times. So then I forced the writing of it and it was just like, I, I couldn't feel comfortable knowing what, um, what a Viking day was like when you woke up into it, even though I'd done all this research. And I ultimately, I don't think I was as, re as interested in it as I should have been. I'm forever grateful to my mentor, Amy Bender, uh, who made the recommendation that perhaps the magic that I was seeking was magic of interiority and metaphysical realization, rather than Vikings and time travel. <laughs> and I read in an interview the draft that you your most recent draft was 750 pages? Not my most recent, but the first draft. The first draft, yeah. okay. The Viking draft. No, I, I thankfully put the Vikings to bed before I finished a full draft. But the first finished draft of the book was 750 pages, and it was nightmarish. I commend you. I can hardly get to like 300. I'm always like, oh no, too much. I don't think the book wanted to be 750 pages. I mean, part of me really wants to like you know, say that I actually wrote a book that long and was forced by a misogynistic publisher <laughs> that wouldn't believe that a woman would write a book that long, but it was a lot of filler. It was a lot of like getting up in the morning and peeing and making a sandwich because even though I had written 
a book that I considered a novel before I wrote this one, I was completely confounded by the problem of time. Yeah. The compression of time in the novel just dogged me, and I could not figure out what to do about it. Um, so I basically wrote almost every moment <laughs> of the book, and then, and then I began to learn how to compress it. So we've come from a Viking novel to a coming-of-age novel, right? And um, it's really interesting to me because, you know, there's lots of coming-of-age novels, but how often do you see, like, a dark coming-of-age novel? And I'm curious what led you to that darkness. Well, I mean, the, the categorization of the book as a coming-of-age story or as a buildings roman um, are not necessarily ways that I ever thought of it, although I think they're accurate. I was really interested in a story where a woman's interiority was the plot. I was inspired uh, particularly by the end of the story by Lydia Davis and um, I also just was really frustrated with what I saw as a pallid and wan and uh, highly problematic representation of what interiority and desire look like for women. So. I mean, it's kind of a bonkers story in terms of what actually happens in it, but at the same time, it's so ordinary. I mean, I think the gift of, you know, not being 18 anymore is that I know how extraordinarily common these kinds of almost instantaneous toxic connections between people are and how easy it is to fall into a relationship where you become another person's sort of not just custodian or crutch, but really sort of like their uh, remora, right? And um, that became more and more the story. Um, it's funny because I, I suppose it is not necessarily the feel-good hit of the summer, but... Um, <laughs> Who likes reading those? Let's be honest. Well, and I, I, think it's a, I think it's a hopeful story because it's a story in which a young woman comes to understand more about who she is, which is something that many people don't get when they're 18. And it's not like when the book ends, she's got it all figured out. Um, I also just, I, I see a lot of narratives that are packaged about young people that suggest that somehow the experiences you have when you're around the age that Roxana is are maybe intense but fundamentally like lesser than those that come later in life and um, again I think there's a misogynist slant there. Um, 18 year old male characters are killing people in wars and certainly fucking their way through Europe so um, it didn't seem it didn't seem that outre or that dark but um, there there is there is no leavening agent in the book is indeed unfortunately there often is not in life. Right. I mean, it was interesting to me, I don't want to give too much away, but the book starts to feel very claustrophobic in an interesting way. <laughs> and while her exterior is getting more and more claustrophobic, her interior life is blossoming in a really interesting way. And I was just, I wanted to talk about that because I thought it was a really neat trick and sort of how you arrived at that. You know, I think one of the beautiful things about being alive is that the incredible strangeness of the world is always accessible to you and we fool ourselves into thinking we know anything about ourselves or other people and one of the ways that that is presented as you know a false belief is through the strangeness of the body um 
And so if you live a life where you're circumscribed in the spaces that you occupy, even if unlike Roxana, you're not actually confined to an apartment, um, you, you just start to notice a lot of weird things. And I, I came to realize that the metaphysics and the magic that I was always drawn towards was really as simple as the sort of horror show of being a woman in a body, and also being a man in, the, in a body. But I mean, I, I've become more and more of a skeptic about the idea of any kind of boundary between the interior state and the exterior. Um, I think that lots of people have the experience of becoming kind of hypnotized by the mystery of how shitty things can be on the outside and how resilient the inside is. And um, that is what I think grace is. And so I had occasion to learn about what that type of grace was like and I wanted to commit it to the page. Yeah, it's funny when the book starts, it seems like Roxana sort of needs to learn about herself through other people and her relationships with other people. And it starts with her friend Sylvie and then Hunter, and then Soren, and then finally Geddon. But really, those characters pale in, into comparison into like who she is as a person, and she's so compelling. And um, I wanted to ask you, I think about this all the time, like why are women and their desires so dangerous and so compelling to write about? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't want to be like the meme factory up here, right? Um, you know, there there are a lot of I, I I doubt it's going to come as as news to anyone in this room if I say that a frank accounting about something like how you wash menstrual blood out of your underwear has the ability to unsettle an enormous patriarchal capitalist hegemony. Um, but there is obviously like a for for a book in which money is almost kind of like a ghost in the machine. I mean, there is like a huge investment in keeping women bound in notions of themselves and their bodies that require the intervention of third parties for management. Um, I also just think that people who seek to control other people, men and women both, want to deprive them of the strangeness and the grandeur of the embodied experience. And I mean, it's funny to me that we live in a time that both simultaneously recognizes the incredibly diverse and vibrant spectrum of human sexuality and expression, and at the same time likes to pretend that, you know, I don't know, something like compulsory virginity or, um, well, okay, not to be really gross, but um, what's grosser than compulsory virginity? Um, <laughs> I was on I was on Teen Mom Twitter the other day because a lot of people in this room know I'm a big Teen Mom franchise fan and um, sort of an ancillary figure, uh, a mom of a teen dad, was tweeting about how like she often meets young women who don't know that you have to wear panty liners all the time, especially on hot days. And all these other women chimed in about how like not only do you need to change your panty liner several times a day, you need to employ all these like sprays. 
And I mean, it was a moment in which I just felt really sad and also, of course, you know, in my stereotypical way, mildly superior because like that was a sizable section of the population believing that you have to like buy products to make your pussy okay. And um, it's very freeing knowing you don't have to participate in that bullshit. I mean, I feel like it's like an accident of birth or something though, right? Like there's, there's, there's a dissertation to be written about like who got targeted with panty liners and hot weather. And um, I think just talking about how all of that is bullshit is not just freeing, but fundamentally humane. Um, I'm really tired of the sexual anorexia of a culture that prescribes sexual lasciviousness as a performance and yet also negates the necessity of sexual expression for all people. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's it's such a weird culture we live in right now. It's so it, this divide of like everything needs to be very puritanical and we need to perform purity, and then everything around us is like, but this is how you be sexual, and this is like a very tiny box of how to be sexual as performance. Um, so so much of this book is about the divide between fantasy and reality in relationships. And I wanted to talk about that because it's, you know, when you think about being an 18-year-old girl, woman, you have like a big fantasy life of what it's supposed to be like, what it's supposed to be like when you lose your virginity or what like playing house is like. And this is sort of a horror show of the reality of it when you're in a certain kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know sort of why you wanted to tell that story of the divide? Well, I became really fascinated by that feeling that I think most people, if not all people, experience where like you you might not even be living with someone, but you're like alone in an apartment with the first like significant other you've had who's anything approaching serious and you like do the dishes or something and you're like, yep, I've pretty much got this figured out. Like I basically own this home. And it's this I mean, I think I think women are certainly primed for it, but I think men and women are both vulnerable to that feeling. And um it feels really good. And I think it feels good both because it slots you into a gender role, but also because it just feels like a type of autonomy and maturity, which it's not. It's play acting towards. Um, but that too was a pleasure that I didn't see portrayed as much and that I wanted to explore. Um, and I think a lot of people, again, like my book is about a woman, but I don't actually know that the experiences in here are specifically belonging only to women because I think I know plenty of men of whom this is true too. People want to love someone and they want that love to be a beautiful flower that blooms at midnight and fills their life with joy. And any meaningful experience contains with it, you know, just like a dump truck of sorrow. Um, and so like best case scenario, your dump truck of sorrow has like some flowers in it, right? Um, but as, as we all know, many, many experiences have, there is no flower, there is no bloom, there is only, you know, dirt in your teeth. So I, I wanted to show how, it's, how easy it is to fall into that and to experience with the character that 
horrible, endless, like, awakening. I mean, right. in some ways I feel like the book is, is like one of those nightmares where you keep thinking you're awake and then, like, you have to wake up again. The sleeper must awaken. Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's, it was so interesting and really uncomfortable because it made me think about, sort of, when I was younger, how I performed, like, wanting to be desired, and when you, when it works, and then when it doesn't. And it's just so odd to think about that moment where it ends and sort of the back gets turned on you. And I, um, it's not really a question. I'm just like, it's, it's not often seen in books that like end of desire and, you know, and sort of when you can't do anything to get it back. And it's so uncomfortable watching someone try to get it back. Uh, and so that felt like so realistic to me in a way that I think you do such a service to the reader of presenting that. Um, but to that end, you know, we're obviously not 18. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say to a young Roxana from like our vantage point? Um, like after the events of the book? Yeah, like if you if you sort of knew her story, I remember um, there's always this, and I, I feel like it's very much for female characters. The reader feels worried for what happens to them after the book, like what happened to Roxana? And of course that's very gendered, like you evolve and that's an experience in that time period and you go on with life just like everybody else. But I am curious, like if you ever, if you felt tenderness or judgment toward her and do you now? Well, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna backtrack a little because I thought of all these vaguely mortifying ways to answer these different questions. Um, I'll share with this intimate space of 40 people or whatever it is, one of my earliest uh, memories of sort of sexual rejection. It sounds like it's going to be really scary, but it's fine. Um, when I was seven, um, I had this t-ball coach that I guess I thought was cute to whatever extent one thinks that when they're seven. And I remember trying to walk sexily past him because I had this notion of like a sexy walk and he rushed up to me and he was like, did you hurt yourself? <laughs> and that was, that was the first sign that my life would be, um, you know, structured by a gap between my performance and the uh, reception of the desired object. Um, so I'll just throw that out there for what that's worth. You you know, a lot of a lot of the response to this book, like the early response you get when you write a book, as you no doubt know, is like Goodreads. And I was oh, never go on there. Authors don't go on Goodreads. <laughs> Readers go on Goodreads. We need your response. Definitely go on Goodreads. Yeah, but please. like authors should never go on Goodreads. It's a wild place. Yeah. It's it's like you know I, I don't know what it's like. It's like Goodreads, um, but a lot of res responses were like. I was so concerned about her. Um, I wanted to lock her in my basement. <laughs> Where were her parents? You know, this was so disturbing. And I mean, I think a lot of that is just like the good old revisionism of like getting past the age of 19, yeah. right? And immediately you're like, oh, I've always made good choices. Yeah, I never crawled out my window. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also I think, again, there's something really destabilizing about the idea that 
young girls everywhere having these experiences and young boys and young non-binary people and like it, everyone is putting themselves in like the worst possible situation and not just young people either right um but so i never i mean i guess it's kind of you know it, it, it i never felt contempt for her or judgment i mean i always just felt like oh i'm sorry like yeah um and I was I was into it. I mean, she is the character who is the least me of any character I've ever written, and yet, how could she not be so close to my experience of the world? And that was an interesting distance to observe her from. Um, originally, the book also like went into the future, and you got to see Roxana at like 38 years old, which oh, wow. I think it was a good cut. But um, she was a therapist in Bellevue, Washington. Um, <laughs> she had a good life. Um, <laughs> And I think the reason why I felt moved to write that was because, I mean, there was no like direct narrative line with her becoming a therapist or anything. I just, I, I tried to pick like a pretty place and like a decent job, which are total <laughs> fantasies, right? But um, I was interested in, I love books and films where someone goes through something that's just like totally batshit. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, you know, like, a year later or something, and they're like eating an ice cream cone at the library or something, right? Like, and that, that is human experience, and the, the gaps that we experience in compassion towards people who are right. different from ourselves are ones where we project difference into them to the point where we can't imagine what the after right. would be. And that's one of the great problems that we face right now with understanding you know, others who are imagined and, and sketched by people who would seek to control us is dangerous. Um, so like, I like to think that we are at least blessedly to a certain extent past the notion of like the ruined woman. Mm -hmm. um, but even if she's not ruined, I just wanted to show how relatively ordinary this stuff was. Right, like it's an experience, it's not an experience that's gonna break her. It's like, it will obviously, she'll think about it from time to time, but it's not like she's scarred for life. It's just sort of a, dark but ordinary coming of age experience. I was surprised no one commented on her bravery. Um, there's good, good reads reviews, right? Like yeah. it, is, it is valorous and brave, just as it is brave to go into battle, to right. expose yourself to this kind of an emotional turmoil. And every and she's day- She's so vulnerable. I mean, thinking yeah. about like, the fact that she's looking for love and open, and so open to find it wherever she can is like, definitely a war in this world to be that vulnerable. It's a quality that we like to denigrate because it takes away its power and it's less frightening to think of how much we wall ourselves off for self-protection if we denigrate people for being vulnerable and open and we feminize and diminish those qualities but they're the gifts that make the greatest experiences of human life possible. Yeah. Um, let's open it to the crowd. Any questions? Thank you. So earlier drafts of this book, I drove myself nuts trying to figure out how money worked in it, actually. Like, I mean, she's not, she doesn't come from a background that's so wealthy that money's just like nothing to her. But at the same time, if, if the book was engaged with the mechanics of 
of Money on the Regular, it would just be a really different book. Um, a primary plot point is that she has worked all these summer jobs and saved all this money to go on this long dreamed of summer study abroad trip with her good friend to Paris, and then at the last minute, like the rug gets ripped out from under that. Um, but they give her the money back and they send her to Denmark instead. So there's this kind of like, you know, weird bank holiday windfall. It's not really that much money, but that that smooths over a lot of sort of the mystery of how she's in rural northern Denmark without her parents knowing. It's also 2005, which I think is like just, just no, sorry, it's 2010. It used to be 2005, but now it's 2010. Um, but, you know, she's she occupies a class where she's allowed to embody a certain expectation of innocence and naivete, which is not the right of people from less well-to-do backgrounds than the one that Roxanne is from. But she's also not so wealthy that she can pretend to total ignorance about everything. And she is motivated by a fair amount of financial anxiety. And she ends up in the situation that she ends up in partially because it's very easy to let the person who is a citizen of the country where she's living just sort of handle everything. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the ways that the politics and the and the economics of this book work have actually become much clearer to me since it was finished. Um, and the degree to which certain things that I wrote actually fairly devoutly are actually somewhat um, cynical or satirical about her self-positioning as an ardently unracist person because I think she actually does a really good job of spouting what many of us believe that we're deeply unracist when in fact we're all products of a super racist society and we just manifest racism to different extents. Um, so similarly, I think she feels kind of financially fringe in certain ways and yet in other ways she's, she's super gifted and some of that comes out in her conversations with these other people she meets too. Thank you. I have visited Denmark. Um, I was lucky over the course of several years to spend about seven months total in Denmark, although not in one stretch. Um, and to become accustomed to certain elements of Danish culture and also to visit and become familiar with Danish refugee resettlement camps. It bears mentioning that the Danes that I was close to and knew well are not represented in the kind of hysterically xenophobic character of Soren. Um, although I met Danes who were xenophobic in that way, because of the time that I spent there, I was able to develop a dualistic understanding of how American myths and ideas about race and class and culture were kind of funhouse mirrored in Danish culture. Um, Danes will tell you a thousand times over that they are not racist, um, but they're, they have really no problem making statements that um, come out as largely prejudicial against otherness, which they categorize as cultural and not race-based. Um, so again, I'm drawing broad swaths. There are plenty of Danish people who present themselves differently, but I was interested in how a country that is famously the most happy country on earth and um, in many ways seems to have a lot of things figured out, could also sort of fall down on the job of welcoming and assimilating the refugees that it opened its door to and the immigrant laborers who are responsible for a lot of the population growth. Unfortunately, 
Denmark has only gotten worse at this since I started writing this book seven years ago. There was an article in the New York Times a few months ago about how the Danish government has established ghetto zones within Copenhagen, and children who were raised in those zones are required to receive a set number of hours of instruction in Danish culture, i.e. Christian culture, a week, um, and young people can be ankle monitored. And it has to do with an extremely um, unrepentant element of Danish society that envisions the Danish citizen as looking and talking and acting in one way. Um, European nationalism. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I wonder if you, if you might want to talk a little bit more about something you mentioned um, regarding uh, comments on Goodreads about the concern that people had. Um, I don't know if I have a question so much, but it's just that's interesting to me that the idea of a, an 18 year old woman having an exaggerated book, but I, from what I can see, from what it sounds like. Um, I don't know, do you think people feel like a specific gender concern for a young woman that they wouldn't for a young man? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, I mean, but, I, yeah, obviously yeah, I agree, but, but yeah, we just speak more about that. I'm very, first of all, I want to say, if someone reads my book and gives it one star and writes ick, I'm very grateful for that. I really am. That happened. That's real. That's on Goodreads. Um, because, because it is, like, I wrote this book for seven years. I struggled. I can't tell you how many days in, like, unwashed clothes I, like, wept on my computer. And then my mom called and asked how it was going. And I, I like, couldn't tell her and hung up the phone. So if anyone reads it and anyone has any thoughts... I'm grateful for all of it, and I don't at all want to sound like I'm rejecting anyone else's reaction. I'm genuinely interested, and I'm interested in this somewhat censorious impulse towards Roxana. I think people, I mean, separate from, you know, plain old sexism and, and slut-shaming, I think people really want to believe that humans generally are, like, smarter and more together than they are. I think we want to fantasize that we are noble and empowered and make good choices. Um, I mean, the book that that you hold in your hand, some of you, or maybe you will, um, like, has undergone a lot of edits to make her more active. I mean, I had a really, like, out there, I realize now somewhat academic idea that, like, like, you know, Originally, she wasn't locked in the apartment. It was just she was choosing not to leave. And my agent was like, people are wondering why she doesn't leave. And the truth is, I just think people do that all the time. We put ourselves in prisons of our own making constantly. And that's kind of like, and they seem sexy and cool until they're not. And um, people younger than 18 do it, and people older than 100 do it, I think. Um, so I think that also people like to... The book is sometimes marketed as, you know, an erotic book or, you know, a, a naughty book. And um, I think what, I mean, that kind of cracks me up. And I'm, if, it, if anybody gets their rocks off to it, that's awesome. Um, but I also think it's kind of like a poison-filled Madeleine to bite into. Like, sure, there's a lot of sex in it because that's part of human life. Um, but what I was in, the reason why I wrote about sex is because sex is this place where, like, people have very few defenses. And um, a, lot of, a lot of meaningful encounters in life come when people have their defenses down. That's why parenthood is a meaningful experience. That's why battle is a meaningful experience. So I think people like 
knowing that they're getting into a sexy book where just like a valorous war story, things are going to be okay. You know, maybe there'll be like a single act that was not anticipated or something, but it'll turn out to be wonderful. And then, you know, we can move on. And sexual exploration or plot of sexual, you know, ruin uh, and rejuvenation is not something that is ever that honestly looked at. So I think whether or not I succeeded in being honest, I certainly tried to rub everybody's faces in the mud. And it's understandable that people might cough a little when that happens. Yeah. Is this might be a POV question, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about describing worlds within the world of the novel. Like in the excerpt that you just read, there were scenes from movies described and then the fantasies. Um, so did you approach the language of the imagery different intentionally in those inner worlds? Or? That's a great question. I mean, one thing that I got excited about writing a novel that had a cohesive structure was um, that in a novel you can also like throw some other things in there. And one thing for me is movies. <laughs> like, I, I really like movies and TV. Um, it's funny because during the time I was writing this book, I consumed just an extraordinary amount of television and film. And now I've, I feel like I've only watched like a few episodes of Teen Mom in the last two years, pretty much nothing else. So I've really cut back. Um, I'm interested. <laughs> I'm not going to stop talking about Teen Mom, <laughs> although I have to say I may have to stop watching it because they put Bristol Palin on OG and it's really awful. Um, yeah, not on my watch. Um, so anyway, back to literature. Um, the, the imposition of these other narratives and these other images is both, I think the reader and the character are hungry for it. I mean. Life is pretty banal, so um, that's that's part of why we have entertainment. But there, there's nothing weirder than watching TV in a place, in not just a foreign place, but a place where you're not like super applied in the culture, right? Where you're just kind of like, what is this? Um, so actually, all of the media in the book is fictional, except for the film that I describe in that in the end of that section, um, and that's the film Fish Tank, directed by Andrea yeah, Arnold, right? <laughs> um, which is a great film. Um, and you know, a lot of authors I love use film, real and imagined, in their work, like Roberto Bolaño and Rachel Kushner. Um, it's a way to kind of peek at Denmark a little bit, and at Roxana's past a little bit, to see what she's been into. In terms of the POV, I mean, you're getting it through her, but as with all media, there's an illusion of some kind of objectivity, right? I mean, she's probably paying attention to different things than someone else who was watching the same weird Danish movie would, but hence POV. Um, I, I have had many moments in my life uh, where I felt alienated from someone that I'm close to, by how much they identify or attach with a piece of media that seems kind of distant and unknowable to me. And so that was sort of a function of it too. Or not being able to get someone else to understand what was meaningful to you in a piece of film or television and becoming kind of embarrassed and protective of it. So those were strange postmodern emotional experiences I really wanted to put in here. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, looking at your comments so far, I'm struck by the the shadow of like of the battle. You mentioned battle or, or the, the prerogative of an eighteen year old boy to 
kill as a significant life event. And then picking two also about the Vikings that, that have been chased from from I guess I am curious about the the um, about the shadow of violence that you talk about in like in your comments. Plus also like what how do you think the Vikings is the Vikings the Vikings all still there? Like like in what way are they active still in the text that that uh, you know where you decided to instead of supernatural romance to go for metaphysical transformation? They're probably still. I mean, they go to a Viking fort, and she dresses up like a Viking, so it's it's not at all that far from Vikings. Um, they go to more than one Viking fort, actually. I think. I mean, there's not there's not that much else in Denmark. No, no offense, Denmark. Um, there's lots of other things, but there is beautiful Viking history. So there's that. Um, you know, I can't say I was consciously thinking about these war metaphors, although I really appreciate you recognizing them and bringing them up because I think they are very real in my imagination of this book. This is not a book in which physical violence is applied to any of the characters during the events of the book, but it is a book in which I really sought to show how emotional violence is wounding and, and injures. And... Um, there's also a character who is an escapee from a war zone, um, you know, and so, comes somewhat miraculously unphysically hurt, but undergoes untold amounts of, you know, turmoil internally afterwards. And that's the that's the story of displaced people and refugee populations. And in Denmark, um, that state for the survivors of the Balkan War was attenuated because the Danes kept um, Bosniaks and Serbs in camps together and didn't mainstream them into the population for five years, whereas in Norway and Sweden, they were given jobs and homes pretty quickly. Um, there's, there's always this Danish idea that people are going to go back. They really think people are going to go back. So there is, I think when you're in a really bad argument with someone, or Maybe, and maybe that argument isn't even spoken, but there's just this like burning violence in the air. There's a thought of like, is this person going to hit me? Slash, I kind of wish they would hit me because it would give a container for this experience that would make sense. And um, that was something that was real to her experience. Um, but I think, I mean, it's a different story than one that would involve physical violence, but um, a lot of a lot of her desires, I mean, some of the disgust with which the book has been received by, by the Parliament of Goodreads <laughs> also suggests, again, the degree to which we kind of wash and sanitize our own desires and imaginations when we, when we process them and present them to other people. So I was trying to be close to the source on that. We have time for one more question. good? <laughs> All right. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.